Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome back to another episode of Jum'an Nights. As I mentioned last week, we're going to be carrying on the series with regards to the topic of Arba'een as it is fast approaching and we have a lot to speak about. So today we're going to be speaking about the role of Sayyidah Zainab and Imam Sajjad in continuation of the message of Shi'ism after the death of Imam Hussain alayhi salatu wasalam and we're going to be having some Jum'a reflections with regards to the Arba'een walk so without further ado let's get straight into it so we started our series in Muharram speaking about the plan of Imam al-Hussein and his aims in going to Karbala and the aims behind his martyrdom so what we want to do is we want to continue that discussion and look at it from an, a different angle. What were the plan and the aims of Imam al-Hussein after his martyrdom? So in that episode, we spoke about the idea with regards to this ayah in Surah Al-Mujadila, where Allah says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alam tara anna Allah ya'lamu ma fi samawati wa ma fi al-ard, ma yakunu min najwa thalathatin illa huwa rabi'uhum, wa la khamsatin illa huwa sadisuhum, wa la adna min thalika wa la akthara illa huwa ma'ahum, ayna ma kanu, thumma yunabbi'uhum bima amilu yawm al-qiyama, inna Allah bi kulli shayin alim. We spoke about this verse where Allah says that do you not see that Allah knows that which is in the heavens and the earth? There is not a meeting between three people except that Allah is the fourth of them and not five except that Allah is the sixth of them and not less than that no more except that Allah is with them wherever they may be. Then he will inform them of what they did on the day of judgment. Indeed Allah is knowing of all things. We spoke about this ayah being in relation to a agreement that was reached between a number of companions of the Prophet where they plotted with regards to the Ahlulbayt and the Imam very eloquently explained that it was at this moment, at the moment at which these companions came to an agreement that Imam al-Hussein had to be killed. He was destined at that moment to be killed. But then Imam says that this is a warning from Allah, yeah? Allah is saying here that don't think that I can't hear what you guys are speaking about. Don't think I don't know what your plans are, right? And he says another ayah was revealed at the same time. In Surah Al-Zukhruf, verse 79, Allah says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Am abramu amran fa'inna mubrimun. He says, or have they planned a matter well, rather, we are the planners. Allah saying, do you think you're the only one with a plan? Do you think you guys have, have, have planned something and I'm not aware and I haven't got a plan of my own? This is what Allah is saying to them. So when we think about the death of Imam al-Hussein, there had to be a plan for what comes after that in order to preserve the teachings of Shi'ism and to preserve the teachings of Imama and the Imama of the Imams that come after Imam al-Hussein alayhi salatu wasalam. He further warns them in the next ayah by saying, أَمْ يَحْسَبُونَ أَنَّا لَا نَسْمَعُ سِرَّهُمْ وَنَجْوَاهُمْ بَلَا وَرُسُلُنَا لَدَيْهِمْ يَكْتُوبُونَ He says that, is it that they think that we can't hear them? Or that we don't know about their secrets and their secret meetings? Rather, our messengers are there and they are writing. They're writing everything down, right? So Allah, he's making it clear here that Allah has a plan to combat that which these people are doing and part of that plan was the martyrdom of Imam al-Hussein so that he could expose their evil in a short-term manner right but of course by killing Imam al-Hussein they wanted to take away the nur of Allah upon earth right 
Allah says in the Quran, Yuriduna and Yutfi Unurullahi bi afwahim, Wayaballahu illa and Yutimma Nurah, Walo Karihal Kafirun. He says that they only wish to extinguish the Nur of Allah with their mouths, but Allah does not allow except for His light to be made clear. And Allah says in the Quran, وَمَكَرُوا وَمَكَرَ اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ خَيْرُ الْمَاكِرِينَ He says that, and they plan, and Allah plans also, but of course Allah indeed is the best planner. So what was the plan, right? If you think about this very logically, sometimes we have this problem as Shia, that when we think of the Imams, we think of them as mythical and, uh, and fantastical people where we think you know whenever they had a problem they used to solve it using miracles or they used to solve it using their grand wilaya they used to just you know click their fingers and it would be sorted out and for that reason when we have that vision of the imams we fail to see sometimes the practical strategy on the ground the realistic things that the imams actually used to plan strategically in order to safeguard their shia in order to keep the plan of allah moving and progressing We'd spoken in that episode with regards to the situation after the martyrdom of Imam al-Hussein. In Ziyarat Nahiyah, Imam Mahdi says that they killed Islam by killing Imam al-Hussein. They they stopped the salat and the siyam through killing Imam al-Hussein. There was a lot of damage that was done to Islam through the martyrdom of Imam al-Hussein. Then what happens after? All the companions, the grand companions of Imam al-Hussein were martyred. The Shia are very few in number. There's only very few Shia that believe in the Imam of Imam Sajjad, right? Imam Sajjad is first taken as captive. Then he's not able to shout and scream and show his Imam, of course, due to security reasons. So what's the plan? Think about it. You're a Shia living in that age and Imam Hussein has just been martyred alongside his companions. You have no idea what's going on. You can't figure out what the plan is. Right? So how did the Imams plan for this tough scene to be sorted out? You have to imagine the situation is so dire at this point. Banu Umayyah are still, they've got their propaganda, yeah? They're, they're using their wealth and they're using fear and they're keeping people away from the Ahl al-Bayt How do the Ahl al-Bayt solve this problem? And that's what we want to speak about in this episode. And I want to speak about three individuals other than Imam Sajjad who played a key role and a significant role in ensuring that the message of Tashayyot remained. The first of them I want to speak about is Mukhtar al-Thaqafi and the second is Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya and the third is none other than Sayyidah Zainab alayha afdul salati wassalam. So with regards to Mukhtar al-Thaqafi we all know his role with regards to avenging the blood of Ahl al-Bayt and this was something that was foretold by Amir Mu'mineen um, in a narration we, we read in Tafsir al-Askari we have a narration on page number 435 from Amir Mu'mineen he's speaking with regards to the verse in the Quran where Allah says where he says that we brought down a torment upon the people that had oppressed from the heavens so this ayah was with regards to Banu Israel right they were very praised and they had a very high rank and then they turned away from Allah and Allah sent punishment down on them so Imam Ali والسلام, he mentions that the same way that Banu Israel were tormented with a torment from the heavens the Muslims the same way are going to be praised and then they're going to turn away from the rights of the Ahl al-Bayt who they were ordered to respect and to uphold their rights and they will go and they will kill the children of Rasulullah 
those same children who they were ordered to respect and to love them. And the people were confused at this. They were like, no way. Because this is the time of I mean, Mu'mineen. They're saying, no way. People are going to kill the children of Rasulullah. And they're going to call themselves Muslim. Is this even a possible thing? Amir Mu'mineen, he responds, he says, Bala, khabaran haqqa. He says, this is true and this is exactly what's going to happen. Wa amran ka'inan. He says, and this is exactly what's going to happen. He says that they are going to kill my two children, these two children, Al-Hasan and Al-Hussein. And then Allah is going to send upon them a torment in this dunya from the swords of those whom Allah will place over them in rulership for the revenge of Ahl Bayt, for that which they had done, right? This is the revenge of Allah upon these enemies. And who does he do that through? So Amir Mu'mineen was asked, and who is it that's going to carry out this revenge? Amir Mu'mineen responds by saying, غُلَامٌ مِنْ ثَقِيف A young man from Thaqif, يُقَالُ لَهُ المختار ابن أبي أبيد. His name is going to be Mukhtar ibn Abi Ubaid. So this is from the perspective of Mukhtar being prophesized to take a, a revenge, to take revenge for the blood of Imam al-Hussein But along with avenging the blood of Imam al-Hussein and killing all his killers, what does Mukhtar actually do here? He gathers the Shia on a socio-political level, right? You have the Tawabun at the time as well, led by another companion, but the Tawabun, they lacked strategy, right? They were very um, emotional about the killing of Imam al-Hussein and they had good intentions and good intentions are an amazing thing. But what's even better than that is intelligence, which Mukhtar had a lot of. Um, we even have in the narrations that when Mukhtar was young, uh, um, Amir Mu'mineen used to hold him in his lap and he used to say, oh, you smart one, oh, you smart one, right? He would, he would be acknowledging that Mukhtar would be someone to grow with a lot of intelligence, right? And that was what was needed at the time. A level of intelligence was needed to unite the Shia upon one socio-political aim, right? And that would keep the Shia all together upon a, a goal, an aim, right? So that they wouldn't separate from one another. At this point, you have to think there's a lot of ideologies going around, right? If you leave people around for too long, and they're not connected to the Ahl bayt or they're not connected to one aim, the Shia are not connected, then very slowly, Banu Umayyah, with their money, with their propaganda, with their fear, you'll see people moving away from Ahl bayt and Musa Salaam. So it was needed for someone to keep them together on a socio-political level. And that person was Mukhtar al-Thakafi. So look what he does. He comes to the people and he tells them, I'm here on behalf of Ahl bayt and Musa Salaam. I'm here to avenge the blood of Imam al-Hussein. Right? The blood of Ahl Bayt. And I want to do it in a way that is strategic. I want to go through this in a manner in which we are able to actually get all of our targets. We're able to kill all the killers of Imam Hussein. We're able to kill Shimr. We're able to kill Harmala. We're able to kill all the killers, Omar ibn Sa'ad. All of the actual perpetrators of the crime of killing Imam Hussein, those people would be found and they would be killed. Yeah? So he had a deep strategy here. But what was Mukhtar missing here? Mukhtar is missing being a blood relative of the Ahl bayt You have to think of at the level of the people that were there at the time. They had a deep connection to the Ahl bayt and they didn't want to do anything hastily. They didn't want to go out and, you know, fight against the government when the Ahl bayt maybe don't want them to do that in that moment, right? So what does Mukhtar need? 
this is where we come to now the discussion about Muhammad ibn Hanafiya. But this is going to be like a transition period between Mukhtar and Muhammad ibn Hanafiya. Let's look at the narration of how Mukhtar tries to gather the people, right? So Mukhtar, after being released from the prison of Kufa, he gathers the Shia, right? He's gathered them and he's been able to convince a few of them, but some of them are a little bit, you know, they're like, oh, should we be with this guy or should we not? Should we go with the Tawabun? They're, they're a bit in, in, a, in a state of confusion, right? For the Shia to be completely united on something, they need approval from the Imam, right? So a group of the people around Mukhtar, led by a man called Abdurrahman ibn Shuraih, they go towards Muhammad ibn Hanafiya to get approval. Muhammad ibn Hanafiya is obviously the son of Imam Ali alayhi salatu wasalam. So they go towards him to get approval uh, on the basis that, of course, he's, you know, from the Ahl Bayt He's got the blood of Amir Mu'mineen. So they go towards him and they're hoping for a level of leadership from him, right? So they gather with him and they say, it says in the narration we read from Bihar al-Anwar. This is a historical narration, volume 45, page 365. So a group of companions, they were confused, they gathered together and they said that Mukhtar wants us to rebel against the government of Banu Umayyah and we've given our allegiance to him, right? And we don't know whether he's been sent to us by Muhammad ibn Hanafiya or not. So let's go towards him and mention it to him. فَإِنْ رَخَّصَ لَنَا إِتَّبَعْنَاهُ He said that we're going to go to Muhammad ibn Hanafiya if he allows us to be with Mukhtar, then... We will, you know, we'll join Mukhtar. And if he says no, then we'll leave him, right? So they go towards him. So they go towards Muhammad ibn Hanafiya. This is a very um, sensitive time. You can see it by the way that Muhammad ibn Hanafiya is speaking to them. They say, we've got something to ask you. And Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, he asked them, what, what kind of question do you have? Is it something that, you know, we can speak about publicly or is it a secret? And he said, it's a secret. So he said, you know, give it some time. Let's, let's wait a little while, right? So after a bit of time had passed, we have... Abdurrahman ibn Shuray, who's the leader of this group, he mentions to Muhammad ibn Hanafiya. He says that Mukhtar has come to us and he has claimed that he's come from your direction. He's asking us to unite upon the kitab of Allah and the sunnah of his Rasul. You see, Mukhtar is trying to bring the Shia together on one socio political aim. And to get revenge for the blood of Ahl Bayt So he mentions So we gave him bay'ah upon that That we will, you know, we will unite upon the kitab of Allah and the sunnah of his Rasul And to take revenge for the blood of Ahl Bayt So if you order us to be with him and follow him We will follow him And if you stop us from doing so then we will stop So Muhammad ibn Hanafiya he listened to all of their words And then Muhammad ibn Hanafiya mentioned With regards to taking revenge for the blood of Ahlul Bayt, he says, He says, let us all go towards my Imam and your Imam, Ali ibn al-Hussein, to the small group, right? Because Imam Sajjad at this point, he's not publicly like out there, right? So this is in secret, he's taking them towards them. And they came towards Imam Zain al-Abideen. And they asked him, they mentioned the whole matter to him, that Mukhtar wants to do this. What does Imam Zain al-Abideen say? He says, Ya Ammi, Law Anna Abdan Zinjiyan Taasabalana Ahlal Bayt, Lawajaba Alan Nasi Muazarata. He says to his uncle Muhammad ibn Hanafi Imam Sajad, he says, O oh, uncle, even if there was a slave that would call towards our path Ahl Bayt 
and he would show rigor towards us, then it would be obligatory upon the people to support him. So this is an answer. Mukhtar has come and he said, we're going to do something for the Ahl Bayt We're going to take revenge for their blood. Imam Zayn Abidin saying, support him, right? So the people, uh, and then Imam Zayn Abidin, he says in clearer words, he says, وَقَدْ وَلِيتُكَ هَذَا الْأَمْرِ I've given you the authority upon this Amr, فَصْنَعْ مَا شِئْتُ do whatever you wish to do so. So the people, they came out of there and they were saying that Imam Zain Abdin gave us approval. And of course he gave them approval. This is something that has been planned, that's prophesied. The plan of Amir Mu'mineen, the plan of Imam Al-Hussein. Yeah, that after the death of Imam Al-Hussein, when the Shia uh, have the potential now to divide, it's going to be Mukhtar that's going to unite them, right? So Imam Zain Abdin, of course he's going to approve of this, right? And he did approve. Mukhtar knew that this small group had gone towards Muhammad ibn Hanafiya and Imam Sajjad to get approval, right? So at this point, he gathered some of the people that might have still been a little bit confused. And he knew that the people that had gone to Muhammad ibn Hanafiya were soon going to return to him, right? So they came and they said that, you know, we've been given the authority and we've been told to follow you, Mukhtar. And Mukhtar, through this, he was able to gain the support of all the people. So Mukhtar couldn't act alone. He needed the support of Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, a blood relative of the Ahl al as a representative of the Ahl al the face of their imama on a, on a political level, right? So that the people, when they came to Muhammad ibn Hanafiya and he gave them approval, or the people that were confused would hear that Muhammad ibn Hanafiya has given us approval, then they're, you know, they're relaxed. They're like, okay, cool. Ahl al have asked us to do this. So now we can stick with Mukhtar. And Mukhtar was able to unite the Shia through this and Muhammad ibn Hanafiya was able to unite the Shia through this. And let's not entertain this possibility that Muhammad ibn Hanafiya was trying to be the Imam for himself, right? We find in many narrations that Muhammad ibn Hanafiya would clarify that for the people that were close and he could see that there was no danger in telling them that the Imam of their time was Ali ibn Hussain We have a narration with regards to Abu Khalid al-Kabuli in Rijal al-Kashi on page 94. We have this narration where Abu Khalid al-Kabuli, he, because he was a servant of Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, he'd served Muhammad ibn Hanafiya his whole life, right? So he comes to Muhammad ibn Hanafiya one day and he says that I have served you my whole life and there's not a single doubt, there's not a shred of doubt in my heart that you are the Imam, right? So Abu Khalid al-Kabuli, he comes to Muhammad ibn Hanafiya one day and he says, I'm going to, I'm asking you by the hurma of Rasulullah and Amir Mu'mineen. Can you tell me if you are the Imam that Allah has made his, his, his following obligatory? Is it you? Are you the Imam of Ahlul Bayt? So he mentions to Abu Khalid al-Kabuli, he says, no. He says, Al-Imam Ali ibn al-Husayn. Alayya wa alayka wa ala kulli Muslim. He says, the Imam is Ali ibn Husayn. Right? Upon me, upon you, and upon all the Muslims. So he takes Abu Khalid al-Kabuli towards Imam Sajjad. And Imam Sajjad, he knows that Abu Khalid is at the door, right? And this is just a side note that I want to mention. Imam Sajjad, he says, Marhaban, ya kankar, ma kunta lana bizairin, ma bada laka fina. Yeah, he says, welcome, O kankar, right? So as soon as he mentions this, Abu Khalid al-Khabul, he falls into sajda and he starts to cry, right? And then he says, praise be to Allah, the one who did not let me die until I knew my Imam. And... Imam Zain al-Abdin, he says, وَكَيْفَ عَرِفْتَ إِمَامَكَ يَا أَبَا خَالِدِ How do you know who your Imam is? And 
Abu Khalid says the response. He says, "Inna da'autani bismi alladhi samatni ummilati waladatni." He says, "You called me by my name that my mother called me by when I was born. No one knew this name, Kanka, right? But Imam Sajjad called him by this name to make it clear to him." Straight away, Abu Khalid, as soon as he hears Kankar, he knows no one knows that name. Yeah, so he knows this is the Imam of my time, right? So Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, when someone would get close to him and you know it was safe, he would take them and he would tell them with regards to the Imam of Imam Sajjad, the same way that he did for this group. So what do we see here? Yeah, we've got two aspects from which Mukhtar and Muhammad ibn Hanafiya had to hold it down. Yeah, Mukhtar has held it down in the socio-political perspective, right? He's kept them united politically because he's got the brains and the intelligence for that. Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, he's acted as the face of Ahlul Bayt, right? He's been that representative of Ahlul Bayt in the absence of Imam Sajjad to help Mukhtar on that, on that path. And this was all known and approved by Imam Sajjad, right? And of course it was because this was planned by Imam Ali and Imam Hussein after the martyrdom of Imam Hussein to keep the Shia on the ground together. And that is, to be honest, if you think about this logically, while we have narrations to suggest this as well, which are a lot clearer than what I have presented to you today, this is something that is logical on the ground, right? There has to be a plan. The Imams don't act on vibes. You get it? It's not going to be like, you know, because we look at the Imams, Imam Hussein was the only one to really stand up against the tyrant of his time publicly and go to Karbala and be martyred. The Imams, the other Imams didn't do that, right? Imam Hussein, when he did that, he's done that with a plan, right? There is nothing here that is run on vibes. It is all intelligently structured, right? There's strategy here. There's, there's a plan in place. Mukhtar al-Thaqafi, you're going to sort out on the political side, you're going to keep the Shia united. Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, you are the face of Ahl bayt right? While Imam Sajjad is absent, right? So then you have this bigger picture. Once this aim has been achieved, what happens? Let's look at this narration in Bahar al-Anwar. What happens in this, in this um, instance? We have a narration in the volume number 46 of Bihar al-Anwar, page 29. The narration is from Abi Khalid al-Kabuli, right? The same companion that we were speaking about. Right? And he says, Da'ani Muhammad ibn Hanafiya ba'da qatil al-Husayn wa raju' Ali ibn al-Husayn ila Madina wa kunna bimakata faqal. He says that Muhammad ibn Hanafiya called me one day after the death of Imam al-Husayn and after Imam Sajjad had now returned to Madina. And he said to me, go towards Ali ibn al-Husayn. Right? Muhammad ibn Hanafiya saying, go towards Ali ibn al-Husayn and say to him that I am the oldest son of Amir Mu'mineen, right? Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, he's the oldest son of Amir Mu'mineen. And um, I am more rightful towards the Imama than you, right? And it is upon you, a sajjad to give me the Imama and to give me bay'ah, right? And he says, and if you want, you can choose a judge so that he can judge between us. So you see what's happening here. Muhammad ibn Hanafiya has sent Abu Khalid al-Kabuli, the same companion that we spoke about, who Muhammad ibn Hanafiya himself told Abu Khalid al-Kabuli that Imam Sajjad is the Imam, right? But he's sending Abu Khalid al-Kabuli towards Imam Sajjad to say what? That Muhammad ibn Hanafiya himself is more rightful of the Imama, right? Look at, look at the strategy here, because this is to, 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 to take the minds of the people and show them very clearly, look, that there's two candidates here. There's Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, me, and there's Imam Sajjad, yeah? And he wants to make it clear that Imam Sajjad now is the Imam, right? So he sends Abu Khalid al-Khabuli with this task. 
So Imam Sajjad, what he says is, let's go towards the Hajj al-Aswad. Hajj al-Aswad, the black stone on the Kaaba, is what is going to be a judge between me and you. Right? So Muhammad ibn Hanafi, he agrees. They all go towards Al-Hajj al-Aswad. Imam Sajjad, he says to Muhammad ibn Hanafi, go towards the, the stone and ask it to bear witness about your imamah. Right? And he asked Muhammad ibn Hanafiya to do that on the pretext that he is elder to him and he is the uncle of Imam Sajjad. So he did so and the Hajar didn't say anything. It didn't respond to Muhammad ibn Hanafiya. And then Imam Sajjad went and he prayed two rak'ah. He goes towards the Hajar and he says, Ayyuhal Hajar alladhi ja'alahu Allahu shahidan liman yuwafi baytahu al-haram. He says, that oh the stone that Allah placed as a witness for those who respect the house of Allah. So he asked the stone to bear witness of his imam and the stone it responds. He, he it says to Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, Ya Muhammad ibn Ali, Sallim al-amr ila Ali ibn al-Husayn fa innahu al-imam al-muftarad al-ta'ata alayk wa ala jami'i ibadillah dunak wa dun al-khalq ajma'in. He says, Give the Amr and the affair to Ali ibn al-Husayn who is the Imam whose following is obligatory and is obligatory upon all the servants of Allah less than you and all of the khalaiq, all of the creations of Allah. And then it mentions that Muhammad ibn Hanafiya فَقَبَّلَ Muhammad ibn Hanafiya رِجْلُهُ وَقَالَ الْأَمْرُ لَكَ He kissed the feet of Imam Sajjad and he said the affair is for you, the imamah is for you. And look at the end of this narration. It says, وَقِيلَ إِنَّ إِبْنَ الْحَنَفِيَّ إِنَّمَا فَعَلَ ذَلِكَ إِزَاهَةً لِشُخُوكِ النَّاسِ فِي ذَلِكَ You see, he only did this to take away the doubts of the people with regards to the imamah of Imam Sajjad. When the stone of Hajj al-Aswad speaks, that's it. You know, a stone, an inanimate object is bearing witness that Imam Sajjad is the imam. Right? So he's made it clear for all of the Shia. This is a famous incident and Muhammad ibn Hanafiya only did this once all of the, the aims were, were met. Right? He'd already played his part for Mukhtar al-Thaqafi. He'd already played his part as the face of Ahl al-Bayt. And now it was time to make clear the Imam of Imam Sajjad and he did so through this famous event. And this was in accordance of course with the plan of Amir al-Mu'mineen and with the plan of Imam al-Husayn. So we've spoken about two aspects here. We've spoken about the socio-political aspect which was held down by Muhtara Thaqafi and then we spoke about the face of the Ahlul Bayt, the, the political leadership of Ahlul Bayt which was held down by Muhammad ibn Hanafiya and was later made clear that Imam Sajjad was the Imam, right? There was one more aspect that needed to be covered, right? And that was the teachings of Ahlul Bayt, the fiqh of Al-Muhammad. Right? The belief system, the tafsir of the Quran, and the fiqh of Al Muhammad, right? And who else would be there to ensure that this part of the religion was fulfilled other than, say, the Zainab, right? We find in the narration from Hakima bin Jawad, who we're going to speak about more in the episodes to come, inshallah. On page 459 of Kamaluddin wa Ni'mah by Sheikh al Saduq, who passed away in the year 381 after Hijra, he narrates this narration from Hakima bin Jawad, who mentions, this is a lengthy narration, but I just want to look at the end of the narration. She says, Iqtida'an bil Hussein ibn Ali, 
following in the footsteps of Al Hussein ibn Ali, فإن الحسين ibn Ali أوصى إلى أخته زينب بنت Ali في الظاهر. She says that Imam Al Hussein gave his will to Sayyidah Zainab, the daughter of Imam Ali, in the apparent. فكان ما يخرج عن علي بن الحسين من ألمن ينسب إلى زينب سترا على علي بن الحسين. Yeah, it says that which that ilm, that knowledge that used to come from Imam Sajjad, it used to be attributed towards Sayyid Zainab so that Imam Sajjad could remain hidden, his identity could remain safe, right? So this is a third aspect. Look at the strategy of the Imams. Honestly, like for a moment, think about this, yeah? On a practical level, Imam Hussein has been killed, his companions are gone, right? The Imam of Imam Sajjad, it can't be something that is too public, Right, and you need to hold it down in the religion on three angles: the socio-political aspect, the political leadership of Ahlul Bayt You need to hold down the teachings of the Ahlul Bayt and the Fiqh of Al Muhammad, and all three angles were covered by the plan of Amir Mu'minin. You, you see here, say the Zainab was that person that would cover that angle, the angle of the knowledge of Al Muhammad. She was there to give fatawa to the people. Right, she was there to give the teachings of Al Muhammad to the people, and people would ascribe that knowledge towards her. Right, and of course, she couldn't be the Imam, she's a lady. Right, so in that way, the teachings of Ahl Bayt would still reach the people from Imam Sajjad and be ascribed towards Sayyidah Zaydab, and Imam Sajjad would still be safe. Look at the strategy of the Imams, yeah, after the death of Imam Hussein. This is the deep strategy and the intelligence of the Imams on the ground. This is reality. This is how are we going to sort out this problem on a strategic level. This is not I've clicked my fingers or I've done a miracle, right? Which the Imams are more than capable of doing. But the Imams, they show us this level, this path of intelligence. The Shia, our Shia are intelligent. They strategize. They think about how they are going to safeguard this religion that has reached them with our blood. The blood of Imam Hussein was sacrificed for this religion, right? This is the safeguarding, the, the, the deep plan that they went through and they, they enacted in order to safeguard the religion of Muhammad and Ali ibn Abi Talib. And then while this is all happening, of course Imam Sajjad is a huge part of this strategy as well. How is Imam Sajjad dealing with this, right? Imam Sajjad, we have a, just an excerpt or an example of the makr, the plan of Allah in safeguarding the Imam of Imam Sajjad, right? And how Imam Sajjad would, would do this, right? We have the example of Sahif Sajjadiya, the du'as that were written by Imam Sajjad, which act as teachings from him for his Shia. Yeah, a lot of the time people have this misconception that these are the du'as that Imam Sajjad used to make himself, right? For example, the du'a for your parents, right? That's not the du'a of Imam Sajjad for Imam Hussein. This is him teaching the Shia how you should pray for your parents. There are some du'as in Sahih Sajjadiya which are there specifically for the Shia of Al-Ghaybat Al-Kubra for us, right? Um, and for the community that we are supposed to have become, right? So there are a lot of du'as there where Imam Sajjad, he teaches us the aqaid of Ahlul Bayt. He teaches us the fiqh of Ahlul Bayt. He teaches us so much through his writing of du'as and of course the risala of al-huquq right so imam sajjad he's done, he's done that on a on a literary perspective he's actually written down right which is something that the imams generally speaking they didn't used to do a lot right they didn't used to write 
a lot of books, right? But Imam Sajjad actually did write Asahifa, Asahifa Sajjadi Al-Kamila, and he wrote the Rasalat Al-Hukuq. But let's look at an example of how Imam Sajjad used to ensure that the Tashayyot would keep strong in the people, right? Look what Imam Sajjad used to do. We have a narration here, and I'm reading from Bihar Al-Anwar, Volume 49, page 103. This is a narration that we find actually in Iqbal al-A'mal by Sayyid ibn Tawus. He narrates from Imam Sadiq والسلام, that Imam Sadiq says that when Imam Sajjad, when it used to enter the month of Shah Ramadan, he never used to punish or to give any discipline to any of his servants. And if any of his servants were to do a mistake, Imam Sajjad would write it down. Yeah, he would say that this person, he's done this issue, he's done this mistake and this lady servant has done this error and he would write it down and he wouldn't give them any punishment or any discipline for the mistake that they did and then when it would be the last night of Shah Ramadan what, did, what would Imam Sajjad do? he would call all of his servants into one place and he used to show them that which he had written down right it says ya fulan kada wa kada. he would say to the person look at this list this is what you have done you've done this wrong and you've done this wrong Right, and he says to them, Walam He says, and I didn't punish you or discipline you for that. Do you remember that? And he says, Bala ya ibn Rasulillah. He says, Yes, they would say, Yes, O son of the messenger, we remember that you did not punish us for that. And he would get all of them and he would do the same thing. He would show them all of their errors and the fact that he did not punish them for them. And then look what Imam Sajjad would do. This is this is the beauty of Imam Sajjad. Listen to his words. He says, aswatakum wa He says, raise your voices and say, Ya Ali ibn al-Husayn, inna rabbaka qad ahsa alayka kullama amilta kama ahsayta alayna kullama amilna. He says, say to me, O Ali ibn al-Husayn, indeed your Lord has written all of the things that you have done the same way that you have written all of the things that we have done. وَلَدَيْهِ كِتَابٌ يَنْتِقُ عَلَيْكَ بِالْحَقِّ he says that he's going to have a book that's going to speak against you with truth. Yeah, he's asking the servants to say this to him. And that book is not going to miss out anything, not a small thing, nor a big thing, except that it's going to count it. So he's saying to them, the same way that I've written all the things that you've done, and I've not punished you for it, right? Say to me, that your Lord has written down all the things that you have done, O Imam Sajjad. And the Imam Sajjad doesn't do any errors, he doesn't do any sins. He's saying this to his servants to say this to him. And he used to repeat this, these lines, he would, he would carry on and say a lot of these things and he would say them, say to them to say it to him. And he would stand amongst them. It mentions, he used to be amongst them and they would be repeating this, right? That asking Allah for forgiveness on the last night of Shah Ramadan. And he would say, Rabbi, innaka amartana an na'fu amman dhalamana. He says, Oh my Lord, you have ordered us to forgive those who have oppressed us. And we have forgiven those who have oppressed us the way that you have ordered us. So please forgive us also. Fa'fu anna fa innaka awla bidhalika minna wa min al he says, you are more worthy of doing so, of giving, of, of, of forgiving those who have oppressed us. So Imam Sajjad, 
he would do this every year in Shah Ramadan, right? He would gather his servants and he would do the same thing. He would leave this great idea in their minds. This was like the last time he would be seeing them, right? And he would free them in such a way that they would never forget the way that he freed them and giving them a deep insight into the forgiveness of Allah and the mercy of Allah and the beauty of the belief of Al-Muhammad and the teachings of Al-Muhammad. He would say to them, قَدْ أَفَوْتُ عَنْكُمْ فَهَلْ أَفَوْتُمْ عَنِّي وَمِمَّا كَانَ مِنِّي إِلَيْكُمْ مِنْ He says, I have forgiven you. He's saying to his servants, look at this. Imam Sajjad, when he's speaking to his servants, these aren't servants. Imam Sajjad hasn't brought them to serve in his house, right? He's brought them to teach them, to give them a level of understanding about the teachings of Al-Muhammad and then to let them out into the, the community to go and share their knowledge as well. He says, have you, for, have you forgiven me the same way I've forgiven you? Have you forgiven me for the bad things that I would have done to you? And then they would respond to him, they would say, قَدْ أَفَوْنَا عَنْكَ يَا سَيِّدَنَا وَمَا أَسَأْتِ He says, we've forgiven you, O our master, and there's nothing that you've ever done wrong. You've never been evil to us. You've never done anything to us that has been wrong, right? These servants, they know this, but Imam Sajjad, he is, he is showing them this, this beauty of the understanding of the mercy of Allah, the forgiveness of Allah. And then he would say to them, say, Allahumma a'fu an Ali ibn al-Husayn kama afa anna. Yeah, so he would say that, pray for me. He's asking his servants to pray for him. He's the ma'asum imam that doesn't do anything wrong, right? He's saying, pray for me for Allah to forgive all my sins, right? The same way that he has forgiven our mistakes. And he would leave them to go into the communities. Imagine this, every single year. So one year, you would be in the house of Imam Sajjad as a servant, and he would be teaching you the deep ulum of Al-Bayt Ali Musalat Right? Then he would set you free into the community, right? To go and to share your knowledge. This is a course. Yeah, he's giving them a free course into the ulum of Ahlul Bayt He's actually thought about this. This is strategy. Yeah, this is bringing people into your household, showing them the beauty of the Imam. If you live with Imam Sajjad, you're going to see the beauty in his, in, his, in his personality. You're going to see the knowledge of Imam Sajjad. You're going to naturally be inclined towards him. If you're a normal person, what kind of a normal person is going to be with the Imam and not be naturally inclined towards him? After a year, you will have learned so much that now you're going out free into the community and you are spreading the knowledge of Imam, Imam Sajjad This is the, the course and the strategy that the Imams had in place for Tashayyot. This is how the Tashayyot reached us through their blood and their sweat and their tears. This is the strategy of the Imams. And this is something we need to learn from as their Shia. We need to learn strategy. We need to learn how to be smart about the things that we do. Safeguard, safeguard our religion. Safeguard the aims of Imam Al-Hussein. Safeguard the aims of Imam Al-Sajjad. In our following of them. In our following of Ahl Bayt So that when they look at us, they're proud of us. They want to be proud of us. We are, we are their Shia. We don't want them to be disappointed. The Imams, they're merciful. They're going to look at us and they're going to say, you know what? You messed up, but it's okay. They are father figures. They represent the Rahmah of Allah, right? But what would you rather have? Would you rather have the father that is disappointed, but is still there to support you? Or would you rather have the father that is proud of you to call you his Shia? To call you his Shia? When the Imam says, these are my Shia, you want him to be proud, right? We need to incorporate 
strategy and intelligence into how we understand to show you on the ground. We can't expect the Imam to come back and to click his fingers, right? That's not what's going to happen. The Imam wants us to set the groundwork and the framework for him to do what needs to be done, right? And that is our responsibility as Shia. And for that reason, I recommend all of us to read these narrations, to look at the strategy of the Imams on the ground, right? To see how they used to plan and to safeguard the religion of Shiism. And of course, we can never be like them, but we can strive to move in their example, right? These were the proofs of Allah on his earth. And these were their efforts and the blessings that they left for us. Peace and blessings be upon them. Alayhi salatu wassalam. So for this week's Jum'ah Reflections, we're going to be speaking about the Arba'een walk. As we all know, we obviously we have a lot of friends that have gone, or you might be there yourself right now, uh, on your walk from Najaf to Karbala. We spoke about the prophecy with regards to the walk of Arba'een last week in our episode. And we spoke about how this is a sign of the coming of the Imam of our time. With regards to our experiences, you know, to, to, to be honest, last year was my first ever Arba'een in Karbala. And you know what, it was my first ever walk and it was absolutely amazing. You know what, what's crazy to, to, to think about is that, you know, when like my dad had gone before me, like, you know, I had a lot of friends that had gone to Arba'een and had done the walk before me. And you know, when they tell you about it, it's like, wow, you know, that's amazing. Like, I wish I could go. But when you go there, it is next level. Like, you wouldn't even be able to imagine what actually happens there. You know, like, I remember I, would, I started walking from the Haram of Amir Mu'mineen, right? And you know what, to be honest, yeah, like, this was, that was my first time. So I was expecting it to be like, okay, cool. I'm going to walk for like maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and I'm going to get to the first pole. And I'm going to start my, my walk, right? Because I've been told that there's a thousand poles or a thousand and something poles. So imagine I'm on my way to the first pole now. It, I've been walking for a few hours, yeah. There haven't there hasn't been a single minute. Obviously, we're still in Najaf at this point. There's so many mawakib giving out free food. There's these little children. There's one child I'll never forget, right? Um, like this was like already like maybe two hours into my walk. Um, and like generally speaking, I've I'd eaten quite a bit already. And this child, he comes to me in the in the road and he's like, please come, let's have have some kebab, right? He's got he's got some wraps out and he's trying to and, and I'm really not not hungry at this point i've eaten a lot so i'm like you know what thank you so much um and i've gone to kiss him on the forehead right and he's refused he's refused he said to me no way no way you're gonna kiss me on the forehead you're zahir of mamal hussein right and that child right that's something that stuck with me he was like nine ten years old and look at the level of love he has for mamal hussein look at the level of respect that he's been in his, it's in his blood, it's in his mind for the desire of Mamal Hussein. No way he can kiss me on my forehead. There's, I'm not doing anything huge, right? This is just, this is what I'm expected to do. He's not even thinking of that as something mad. Like at nine or ten, me to be sitting, standing outside in the heat and to be giving food to people, I, I can't, I can't see myself doing that at the age of nine or ten. And it's these people that, it's these little moments that stick with you. I haven't even got to pole one and three, four people have already invited me into the houses. Come pray salah in my house. Come rest in my house, 
right? Then you get to the first pole after like three hours or four hours of walking, right? Or maybe I was just walking slowly, I don't know. But you get there and you're like, okay, cool. All right, we're at pole one, right? And you have to go a thousand poles. Not at, there was never a single point in that journey where I ever felt I'm thirsty. And that's what I, I found crazy, right? In that heat in Najaf, between Najaf and Karbala, I don't know what it was. It might have been like 45 degrees or something. You are, it is heat, bro. Like you are sweating hot, yeah? And throughout that journey, yeah, which took me about a, a day and a half, there was not a single time where I actually felt like, you know what, I'm thirsty and I haven't had water, right? At every single moment, every single step, yeah, you, every 10 poles, there's water being given out, there's food being given out. I never felt hungry. I never felt, you know what, this is uncomfortable place to sleep in, right? Every single part of that walk for me was comfortable, was pure love and you see all these people and you look at them and you know these are my people these are all people that are walking towards Karbala and you can't believe it you genuinely can't believe it like at any point in the day any point in the night you will see people walking and walking and people from Iran people from all around the world India Mawakib from India Mawakib even from from China I think I saw last year we had Mawakib from the African brothers, Nigerian brothers, right? You have the Khoja Mawakib, you have the, the, the locals and their Mawakib. You have Mawakib from every single part of the world. You have people from every part of the world all walking towards Imam Al-Hussein. You can see all these people and it just fills you with love. And you know, at that moment, there's nowhere else you'd rather be, right? You're in the heat of Najaf and Karbala, right? 45, 50 degrees and you're walking outside and trust me, there is no place you would rather be. And that for me, it was just an immense, beautiful experience that I will never forget in my lifetime. Like, I, inshallah, I can go again and I can go again and again every year. Um, I hope to be from those who are written as the visitors of Imam Hussein every year, Arba'een, inshallah. But I, I that first time, I'm sure that that will be something that I will never be able to forget. We have to bear in mind as well that this ritual of the walk of Arba'een is one of our biggest weapons at the moment as Shia for da'wah towards the shayu. This is something that's done by millions, right? This is something that is, and, and I can guarantee you, yeah, that if you go to any person, yeah, that's not even a Muslim, even someone that is an enemy of Islam, right? And you tell them, yeah, for 80 kilometers, yeah, you can walk from Najaf to Karbala and just out of the love that people have for, for Imam Al-Hussein, you will never go thirsty. You'll give you, they'll give you free food. You'll have a free place to, to sleep. You'll be looked after. There'll be people begging you to massage your feet. That even that enemy of Islam will be like, wow. Right? This walk, this Arba'een walk is our biggest weapon and our biggest tool that we can use for that was towards the shayu. so let's use it for that everybody that goes you know some people they say you know you're on ziara why are you on social media all right why are you taking pictures why are you taking videos but you know what this is actually a big weapon for us right every single person that goes if they take a picture or they take a video and they put it on social media they put it on twitter or they put it on facebook or they put it on instagram that's going to be all of their followers seeing it they're going to be like wow you know what the arba'in walk they're going to be encouraged they're going to be like i 
I want to go. I want to see what this is about. I want to know why these people are giving so much in the name of Imam al-Hussein. Who is Imam al-Hussein? Yeah, who is this person that people are willing to give free food in the name of, free water? They're able to, to, to give you all of their services. They, they close down all of their businesses. They save their money all year to set up a mawakib, set up the mawakib for Arba'een to serve the zawar and the visits of Imam al-Hussein. Who is this person? Right? Any logical, simple individual would think that. They would like, why are these people so passionate and why are they ready to give so much in the name of this mission and this aim? What is this aim about? Right? So let's use it as a tool for da'wah towards the shayu. It's the ultimate show of sacrifice and love. Right? And that's what's going to bring people towards the shayu. One of the brothers, actually, he's a sheikh. He said something profound. I, I don't know if he would be okay with me saying his name. Um, but he says something very profound with regards to the ziyarah of Arba'een and our attitude as people coming from the West towards the ziyarah of Arba'een. A lot of the time, what we think about is, what can I get out of the ziyarah, right? What am I going to go and ask Imam Hussein for? What am I going to go and, you know, ask for like my hajat, what am I, what, I want a new job for example, I want to get good grades, I want to get married, right? All of these things you're going to be like, okay cool, I'm going to list up all the things that I want from Imam al-Hussein, yeah? And I'm going to go say it to Imam al-Hussein, right? This sheikh, he pointed out something beautiful. He said that instead of thinking what can we get out of this ziyarah, we should be thinking what can we give to this mission? of ziyarah what can we give to this walk of arba'een he said if you go to one of those old ladies for example in iraq that are giving out tea or they're giving out food and you ask them why are you giving out food they're not they're never going to respond to you for the reward or to go to jannah or to get this or i've got this haja or never they're going to say to you i love imam al-hussein this is what i this is the least i could do in the service of Imam al-Hussein. This is the least I could give to the zawar of Imam al-Hussein. In their minds, they're thinking, what can I give to this mission? This is something that is so beautiful, right? What can I do to make it bigger, right? What can I do to make it a bigger um, a movement, a, a more beautiful movement, something that more people can know about, right? And this is the attitude that we should have when we go to the ziyarah of Arba'een. How can we actually contribute to this movement? And inshallah, that is something that is at the top of our minds when we are walking towards the master of existence, Aba Abdullah al-Hussein. To all those that have gone for the ziyarah of Arba'een this year, please ensure that you keep us in your du'as and you make prayer for us to be among the visitors of Imam al-Hussein next year, inshallah, for Arba'een. I hope that's been a beneficial episode with regards to the legacy of Imam Sajjad and Sayyidah Zainab with regards to upholding the and safeguarding the religion of Muhammad wa al-Muhammad. And I hope you enjoyed my little reflections with regards to my Arba'een walk last year. I'll see you again next week with a new series where we'll be speaking now about women in Islamic history. I'll see you again next week to continue that. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.